morning, if you will, to the prophet Jonah, the book of Jonah. I want to try to introduce this morning sort of a series uh, through the minor prophets. Uh, I remember years ago doing a fairly thorough study through the minor prophets. Uh, the resource that really was helpful for me was uh, James Montgomery Borse uh, series of minor prophets. I think that was a two, maybe a two-volume book uh, set. Uh, and I visited them from time to time since then, but uh, it seemed really relevant to the world we live in today, uh, what the minor prophets had to say, particularly those who prophesied uh, to Israel itself. Uh, Jonah, uh, I believe, uh, starting with Jonah, because I believe it to be the earliest, um, the earliest of the prophets uh, prophesying, in this case, in, in Nineveh, uh, from the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, very interesting. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do this morning was just to give basically a couple of verses and what I believe is key passages in regards to this and what really stood out for me. I understand there are many facets that you could approach the book of Jonah from and really all the minor prophets, uh, but I think maybe the key passage in all of the book of Jonah uh, is said, is, is written in verse 11. Uh, of the fourth chapter, the very conclusion of the book, when God responds to Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. Uh, Joe, uh, Jonah himself uh, sort of establishes that uh, as well when he says in verse three or verse two of chapter four, in regards to the Lord's dealings with Nineveh, that he says that this is why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. And so Jonah, Jonah establishes what God has said in the end of the book here in, in, in his experience with Jonah, uh, that God is a compassionate and merciful God. And it's hard to imagine a context in which that would be less expected than in Nineveh, uh, this capital city of Assyria. At the time uh, that this book was written, uh, or the, the events recorded here, Israel was kind of at one of the peaks of its time. It was under Jeroboam II, and the, they had pressed and expanded the borders of Israel out uh, almost to the level of Solomon's, under Solomon's reign. So, so Israel, it's kind of an unusual time because they are, they are in a very fruitful and prosperous time, politically speaking and even materially speaking, but spiritually uh, they, were, they were in a desperate time. In fact, uh, contemporaries to, to Jonah were Amos and Hosea and Joel, and they were prophesying primarily to Israel, northern Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, and they were rebuking them firmly. And so while Israel was prospering outwardly and expanding and, and exercising a, a great influence in that region, they were spiritually uh, declining and deteriorating to the point that God was sending prophets to prophesy to Israel in, gar in regards to their pending destruction. And so it's unusual that uh, God in the book of Jonah would call Jonah now uh, to go to the to the nations, uh, the nation of Assyria, particularly to the capital city of Nineveh, and prophesy there in regards to what was coming upon them. So it is kind of an unusual book. He begins in verse 1. I'll just read a few of these verses. 
of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. In chapter 3, uh, verse 2, whenever Jonah finally repents and comes back and, and is obedient to the Lord to go to Nineveh, it says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city in three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, it may strike you as unusual that I'm seeing in this letter, this, this uh, book of Jonah, the mercy of God and the, and the compassionate nature of God in, in that particular message because it sounds pretty decisive and pretty conclusive. Jonah is not saying judgment is coming or judgment is off in the future somewhere. Jonah doesn't even say to them, repent. He simply says that judgment is coming. You will be overthrown in 40 days. That's it. There's no gospel preaching here. There's no, there's no appeal for repentance. There is a clear declaration of the judgment that is imminently upon them. And so the whole book involves that. But I want to talk this morning, uh, probably more briefly than usual, but about the, those things that are preliminary to not only, not only uh, Nineveh's deliverance, but also the deliverance of Jonah himself. In fact, I couldn't help but thinking about chapter 3 of Romans in regards to this mercy of God He writes, Paul writes in that, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And hear this decisiveness, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance, this is where I think it's relevant, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, Paul says, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of he who has faith in Jesus. So we maintain, verse 28, that a man is justified apart from faith, apart from the law by faith. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is how decisive even the condemnation in Genesis is. Uh, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. Uh, I was sharing with the young folks this morning, I've not seen anywhere in Scripture where that penalty was removed. That is a decisive fact. Uh, if there is sin in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So death accompanies disobedience to God. And as the, the progeny or the offspring of Adam, we are all born under the same condemnation as Adam. 
Everybody in this room has sinned, and biblically speaking, the only consequence for that sin is death. There must be the death of the sinner. That is the condemnation. So when Jonah goes into Nineveh and says to them that you will be basically destroyed, the judgment of God is coming upon you, that is just as decisive. In fact, in verse 1, He says there that their wickedness was so great that it had come up before the Lord. And then when Jonah returns and and is obedient to God and goes into the city, that's the very reason he goes is because of the wickedness of Nineveh is great. And so that's one of the preliminaries, I think, to mercy for Nineveh is that there is a clear, there is a clear demonstration of the wickedness of the city of Nineveh. If you do a little bit of the research into the Assyrian Empire, it was indeed a bloody empire. I mean, there are, there are inscriptions that they have uncovered uh, archaeologically where it actually shows that men were impaled upon poles uh, up through their bottom and lining the streets. And the king would actually bring in other people as they conquered. They would bring, uh, cut off the heads of the leaders and weave them together on ropes and hang them around the surviving leaders' necks and lead them into town. They were dismemberment. There was a brutal, bloody people. Unlike the Persian Empire later on who would tend to assimilate the people through through gracious acts in some ways and in some ways through accommodating religious preferences and stuff, Uh, the the Assyrians were exactly the opposite. They They meant to bring people under the power of the Assyrian Empire by force and by terror. It was a wicked place and a wicked people. Interestingly enough, some of the research shows that all the kings even before this time and some of those after, there was a brief pause in the middle, which I think coincides with Jonah's visit there. But every king as a part of their, as a part of their memorial <coughs> would write down king so-and-so, campaign in so-and-so. So every king was almost obligated and responsible in this area for conquering other nations. And so Assyria was on the ascendancy. It was approaching the zenith of its power. In fact, we know later on that Assyria would be used as an instrument of God to bring judgment upon his people. So while Assyria is ascending in power and while Israel is in the, is in a really one of the heights of its expansion and its borders was at a low point, morally speaking, in regards to their faithfulness to God. So here you have Syria or you have Israel prospering outwardly, but deteriorating spiritually. And you have the ascendancy of a wicked and godless, a godless people. And these two things happening. And so prior to this extending of mercy, as it were, there must be a wickedness. Let me just say that without without unrighteousness, without wickedness, without sin, there would be no need for mercy. Mercy implies that there is an undeserving people to be who, who are to be a recipient of it. And so when we think about ourselves as sinners under the condemnation of death, we ought to think in terms of mercy. But where does the mercy come from? I've always been fascinated by this, and perhaps I'm overstating this a bit. 
Because there is, there is temporal mercy, I would call it. That is, the sinner lives one more day when the condemnation upon him is death. And the fact that it isn't delivered or upon him in that moment, there is a semblance at least of mercy there. And I've always wondered, where does God, where does a righteous and just God who withholds immediate fulfillment of that penalty, where does that mercy come from? And I'm convinced that it all passed and for, forward is rooted in the sufficiency and the merit of the death of Jesus Christ. So even the lost man who lives another day is in some way, I think, maybe a beneficiary of a mercy purchased for him by the very blood of Christ, for which in, upon rejecting Christ, he will be all the more guilty of having tread underfoot the very blood of the mercy which he enjoyed as he rebelled against God. I, maybe I'm overstating that, but mercy is that critical. And I think the Jews, as God's people, had a way of isolating God to a, a national God, as it were, or a Jewish God. In fact, that's not unlike the nations around him. Each nation tended to have its own gods, its own tribal deities, their own regional deities. And the Jews, maybe influenced by that somehow, began to view God as kind of exclusive to them. Outside of God's own word that through Abraham, the world could be blessed. And so they had isolated themselves and, and basically were a recipient, they thought, of the mercies of God in a, in, a, in a way unlike the rest of the world was not subject to those same mercies. So this is a really strange dynamic that Judah or that Jonah is speaking into. So prerequisite to this mercy is obviously sin and wickedness, particularly in this context of the Ninevites and the Assyrians. Also, I think pre pre prerequisite to this is the righteousness of God himself. And when we say sin, we're meaning anything that which is inconsistent with the holy character of God. And for, I think for men acting in ways apart from which we were created. We were created for the glory of God, to display the glory of God through, through fulfilling the purposes of God for us. The one prohibition in the garden was that we not eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And we violated that. And so we acted outside of our purpose for existing. And everything following that is sin. And God is righteous and holy. I think sometimes we want to rank sins as the more heinous sins. It's true that some sins have a greater impact locally and nationally and even globally, but all sin is a violation of the holy, righteous character of God. So they're, they're, the idea of mercy implies in itself that there are men that are living that are not deserving of the good favor of God, and the reason they are not is because God is infinitely holy. When you sin and when I sin and when we let the little white lie slip out or we leave out the word of gossip or when we are deceiving or manipulative of another person, we are sinning against an infinitely holy God. We are sinning openly and in defiance of the very character of God and that deserves nothing short of death and anything but that is a mercy. 
And so prerequisite to this mercy is the holy, righteous character of God. Not to mention the fountain from which that mercy might flow. Because if this holy and righteous God withholds judgment or even condemnation for even a moment, there must be a mercy drawn somewhere upon which that delay is justified. That's what I think Romans 3 is saying. God has put forward Christ as a public propitiation for sin to demonstrate his own righteousness in the passing over of sins so that, so that by the display of Christ, God might be understood as, to, as both the justifier and the just. God was not unjust to offer mercy to Nineveh. It was not unjust through the prophet to offer compassion and grace to Nineveh. Why? Not because Nineveh didn't deserve the judgment. In fact, that's the very message he sent Jonah to preach in Nineveh. He is just in the offering of this mercy through the, through the mercy, I think, of Christ Jesus, through the merit of the blood of Christ, the delaying of this fulfillment of punishment. So prerequisite is this wickedness, but also the infinite holiness and righteousness of God. In verse 1 it says it was the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. Wasn't Jonah's word? It wasn't the consensus of the leaders of Israel. In fact, they were corrupt themselves and being rebuked at the same moment by Amos and Hosea and even Joel to, to a different degree. So it's not the word of the religious leaders. It's not the word of the king, Jeroboam II. It's not the word of anyone. It is the word of the Lord, this infinitely holy and righteous God who had brought to himself a people now in Israel and as in this case is expanding out in regards to the nations. Another ideal, you can see it again in chapter 3, verse 4, is prerequisite to this idea of compassion and mercy is the idea of justice. Notice in chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time and he says to him, go to the city of Nineveh with this proclamation. And he tells us later on in verse 4 that Jonah began to go through the city and he cried out and he said, this is the proclamation. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. I was really struck by that because there is in this no offer of repentance. There is no, either you turn from your sins or I will overthrow the nation. It is this, it is this the decree has gone forth, Nineveh shall be destroyed. And so frightening, we see the response of that, and we know that even from Romans as well, uh, where he speaks of the kindness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So, so maybe this proclamation is the kindness of God which would produce repentance in Nineveh and a mercy towards Nineveh. But, I, but I'm struck that the message here is simply the reality of the condemnation under which they were living at that moment. Forty days. You have little over a month before Nineveh will be destroyed. He doesn't say in 30 days, if you don't repent, I'm destroying. The, the condemnation has gone out. And let me just say, so is the condemnation upon sin that, that decisive. The wages of sin is death. The day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The decree has gone out. That is the reality 
Unless there is something that intervenes to, to alter that in some way, that is the condemnation upon everyone who sins. And so I think it is in regards to Nineveh. That is the condemnation resting upon you. Jonah is not speaking at this moment in regards to mercy or in regards to God relenting in regards to this decree. It is the reality of the decree that Nineveh will be destroyed. Its wickedness had grown up before the Lord as though it it had risen up and the stench of it had come into the nostrils of the Lord and he meant to exercise a judgment upon that wickedness. It has already gone out as a decree. This is the consequences of your wickedness. That's how serious it is when it says the wages of sin is death. When you read that, don't look over that. Even as a believer, rejoice in the grace that prevented that sentence from being carried out in your life. But that it no more minimizes the sentence. To the world, God is saying at this very day, the wages of sin is death. If you continue in sin, then the wages that you will surely reap from that is death. Eternal dying. And I think that's why the, the decree here is so decisive in, in, in Nineveh. God sends Jonah to Nineveh to give them the decree. This is the outcome. This is the merit of your wickedness. It assures you destruction, death. And so it demonstrates the justice of God. Notice as well that prerequisite to this mercy as well is the word of the Lord. He gets into a more positive here for he says in the first chapter, the very first verse there, it was the word of the Lord that came to Jonah, son of Amidai. And then in chapter 3 again, he goes to them, the word of the Lord came again a second time to Jonah. What I'm getting at there is that this is the word of the Lord. That's a that's prerequisite to the mercy coming. The word in this case was the reality of their condemnation and the degree of their wickedness from a righteous and holy God. This is who you sinned against. This God is bringing destruction upon Nineveh. That's the word. I think in our generation... We try to convince people that God loves them and, and we woo them in that way. You ought to come to Jesus because God loves you. God loves you. Well, there's a place, a case to be made for the great love of God. But in this case, Jonah didn't go to Nineveh and explain to these wicked Ninevites how much God loved them. He came to them and spoke to them the reality that the wickedness in the Ninevites had demanded the justice of God and that was their overthrow. Forty days it's happening. No mercy, no repentance, no appeal, no expression of the great love of God, no expression of any, any manifestation of mercy, just the condemnation. This is what is ahead of you, Nineveh, and this is what you have merited, Nineveh. That's a powerful message, maybe a message our world needs to hear today. Yes, I want to tell people about the love of Jesus, but at the current condition and the wickedness that is rising up, as it were, in the nostrils of God today, it may be that particularly in America, the message needs to be heard. America, 40 days and, and you will be destroyed. Maybe, the, maybe the, we just need to hear the reality of what that sinfulness and that wickedness merits, and that is death. And perhaps in the fear of that condemnation, God might grant in his kindness repentance as he seems to have done in Nineveh. So as there is the word of the Lord, there is a second time in chapter 3 
I called this in my notes. There is involved in the, in the extending of mercy a divine confrontation. If there's not that, then mercy is not mercy. I mean, mercy is magnified when I realize the depth of my depravity and the just condemnation do it. I was sharing with the kids this morning. The difference in my, my conversion was the reality that I experienced or the weightiness of my sin and its consequences. For the first time in my life, I think because of a divine confrontation, I didn't just feel remorse because I got in trouble when I sinned or because I hurt people that I generally loved when I sinned. I realized in that moment through, I think, divine confrontation that the weightiness of my sin was that I did it in the presence and in the view of an infinitely holy God. And I felt the weightiness of that. And I tell you, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, if I am cast into hell eternally where the suffering will never end, from there I will have to bow my knee and acknowledge the righteousness of the God who condemned me to this place. And that suffering I understood would never end for, for it to end will imply that I have somehow accomplished payment of the debt that I owed that holy God. That's why it must be eternal. See, that's... That's when mercy was magnified. If you come to me and you said, Larry, you're going to have a miserable life and you're going to go to hell someday if you don't repent. I might, have, I might have believed you in a cursory sort of way and made that profession of faith and said the prayer and got a blessing of a preacher. But I wouldn't have known the value and the root of mercy. But in the confrontation, the condemnation, when it's magnified in our heart and in the depths of our soul, oh, how great mercy looks then. That's the message to Nineveh. It involves the word of the Lord. As well, prerequisite is the word of the Lord being brought to Nineveh required a prophet. In this case, Jonah. It was really interesting to me that Jonah and his father, he names him as a Midiai, and Jonah uh, is, a, is, is, is dove. That's the meaning of the name Jonah is a dove. <laughs> so here's the dove. I'm sending the dove to the most wicked nation on the planet. I'm sending a dove. We think of doves as harmless and gentle and I, I think of a cooing dove. I hear them at the house all the time. That ooh, ooh, ooh. A cooing, soft dove. They're beautiful birds. I'm sending a dove with the message of condemnation to the most wicked nation on the planet who would more than likely cut his head off if they didn't agree with what he had to say. Dangerous place to be, Nineveh, for doves. Not only was he a dove, but he was the son of a man whose name meant truth. So here, God's sending a dove, the son of truth, to Nineveh, the most wicked nation of earth, to pronounce its judgments. You know what's interesting to me? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus cites Jonah. You remember that? They come to him and they say, we want a sign. We want, to, we want you to prove you are who you say you are. And he says, this is a wicked and evil generation, Nineveh. Who seeks after a sign. There will be no sign given you but the sign of Jonah. Who was three days and three nights in the well, in the, in the belly of the fish. So must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the, in the grave and rise again. That's the only sign sent. But what's interesting about that is you know what set that conversation in motion? 
They brought a demon-possessed man, a wicked man, to Christ. And Christ healed him, cast out demons. And they were angry. They were upset. And they even went so far as to say, he's casting out demons by the power of demons. Beelzebub. And then Jesus rebukes them down through that passage. And finally, this is when they ask, well, what sign do you give? And Jesus gives them the sign of Jonah. I think there were more parallels involved in that rather than being in the grave three days and coming up. That's the primary one. But there's a strange parallel in that as well is the whole conversation was initiated by God extending mercy through Christ to the demon possessed. Nobody more wicked than that. And the reference to Jonah may have called to mind for them a time in their history when God extended mercy to the wicked nation and the prophet got upset about it. God is a compassionate, merciful God. Jonah knows it himself. I already quoted in chapter 3. This is why I went to Tarshish. I knew you were like that. I knew you were a compassionate, gracious, merciful God, long-suffering and slow to anger. I knew that that was your character. Well, my question would be, well, Jonah, why would you get upset when God acted within his character? And to the Pharisees in Jesus' day, why are you upset when I'm acting according to my character? So if you want a sign, no sign's going to be given. Remember Jonah who was in the belly of the whale. I think that has implications regarding what I'm going to share tonight about Jonah's own experience of the mercy of God here. That's the sign that will be given to you. So it takes a prophet. Notice I said there, dove, the, the, gentle, the, the spirit of the prophet here. The spirit of the prophet. Jonah, I wonder, I'm, I feel sure that when he made the declaration, he made it with a bold, decisive, imperative tone. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And he circled the city or marched one day into the city. My understanding is that the city was as much as 60 miles in circumference. A three days walk, they would say 20 miles around the circumference of the city. In fact, they often measured cities by their circumference. So it was a massive city. And Jonah walks into it, a day's walk, and he's declaring, I think imperatively and decisively and boldly, yet 40 days and destruction will come. And even after he had to repent before he went and declared that message, it seems as though somewhere in the heart of Jonah, it was a hope that they wouldn't respond at all. They're not deserving, perhaps, of mercy. And then the final one that I mentioned here is chapter 2, or verse 2, and then again verses 2 and 4 of chapter 3. But there is this message. There is this ideal of judgment and overthrow. The word of the Lord came to Jonah of Amidiah, son of Amidiah. And that word was to be carried in a message form, in the forms of words to them. Uh, Notice here that it was specific to what God had ordered him. He says, go to Nineveh and say what I'm going to say, tell you to say. And then we read that he said, yet 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Well, the obvious conclusion is that's what God told him to say. He didn't ad lib and it says something about the faithfulness of Jonah that he had this heart that wasn't exactly right, but yet he was faithful to declare the word. Let me just insert here, sometimes... The, motive, the heart of the person speaking the truth 
is irrelevant to you in regards to the truth of it. Nineveh, Nineveh didn't know the motivations of Jonah. Perhaps they suspected them, but what was critical here was the message of Jonah. God rebukes Jonah for his own heart later on, and we'll see that, and it's fascinating. But right now, the heart isn't the issue. The Word is. And that's a, that's, now I don't want to be the one with the wrong heart preaching the right Word. I want my heart to be lined up. I want to be the dove that's sent to carry the message and the truth of the word, but, but whether or not my heart as a fallible man is perfect in this, the decisive reality is whether or not it's the true word. And so it is when you hear preaching or teaching or you read books. I don't always know the motive, and sometimes we find ourselves disregarding the word because of the suspected motive of the teacher or the hearer. I just shared on Wednesday night Jesus' uh, rebuke of Phariseeism, as it were. Well, Jesus didn't destroy the institution, Moses' chair, synagogue, reading of the word. He didn't destroy that, even while he called into the question the hearts and the, and the covetousness of the ones proclaiming that word. In fact, he says, what they tell you to do and, and observe, do the those things. Jesus didn't say, because their motives are wrong, disregard the truth, disregard the, the institution through which the truth is, is, is meted out, disregard the scriptures, because the man saying that isn't perfect. Well, Jonah's not perfect either, but they would have, they would have rejected this message, message at their own risk. Let me say something else. This is not just a, this is not just an offer or an extension of mercy to Nineveh who was completely undeserving of it. But by the, by the effects of their repentance, it turns out that it was a mercy to Israel as well because the prophets at the same time Jonah's in Nineveh are in Israel saying, turn, repent, or the judgment of God is coming upon our nation. And they were hard-hearted and stubborn and greedy and sexually perverted and even idolatrous they had become under Jeroboam too. They're, they were expanding and successfully outward and Israel thought the Lord is truly blessing us, but they were corrupt within. And the prophets were sent by God con condemning and calling out their inward corruption and faithlessness all the while God sends a prophet to Nineveh to warn them as it were through this proclamation and had not they responded it may have been that the, the overthrow of Israel itself and the judgment of God may have come on them more quickly in fact we do know some authors say 150 years, 100, even less than 100 years, it would in fact be Assyria that overthrew the northern kingdom. God's judgment through the prophets would come upon the northern kingdom. But I was talking about the archaeological stuff earlier. It's interesting because at the exact time when Joseph, or Jonah is prophesying in Nineveh and the, the events unfold, we see in this ledger of the kings, every year and every king there was a battle campaign. And suddenly... For four years, you don't see any battles. There's no conquest. The kings, and it coincides with the preaching here of Jonah in the history. And then after that, it picks up again. The kings pick up, and then they start listing again. King so-and-so, this campaign. King so-and-so, this campaign. They were a warlike people, and the message of their condemnation came to them just at the time when God was warning Israel that judgment was coming. They didn't respond, and the war started back up again. God gave them a window, as it were. His mercy to Nineveh was was his mercy to Israel. Ever think about that? 
What if, what if God's mercy towards your greatest enemy is His mercy towards you? What if your disregard as to whether or not they respond to God's re- re- reaching out or God's rebuke of them, sometimes I think we have the idea that if there are enemies, I don't want God to reach out to them. I don't want them to respond. I want Him to judge them and destroy them and remove my enemy out of my way. What if God offers, as it were, mercy to your enemy as a mercy to you? Maybe the repentance and the turning away from their wickedness of your enemy may become the the instrument by which God spares you of the wrath poured out upon you through the violence of that same enemy. What if God's mercy towards your enemy is his mercy towards you? This is what I don't think Jonah understood. In fact, this is the only record we have of any prophesying of Jonah at all. In fact, I wrote in my notes, I I asked this question, and I kind of did a search on this. In what sense is Jonah a prophet? I mean, he's he's prophesying, obviously, that Jonah, uh, uh, Nineveh, is going to be destroyed. And apparently, from all God gave him to say when he left, he surely expected that. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that he went up on a high place, and he watched to see what God would do. He seemed to be fully expecting that they would not turn away, and God would indeed, in 40 days, bring judgment and overthrow the city. In fact, the side that he took his place on, it is believed that because they were backed up on the other side, that the enemy that would overthrow him would come from that direction. So it's almost as if Jonah set himself between Nineveh and the direction which an army that would overthrow him would come. And I'm going to wait and see. And nothing happens. No army comes. No overthrower comes. And you have to think about Jonah. He said, I just, I just told these people that 40 days they were going to be destroyed. And there's no destruction. There's been mercy that I wasn't anticipating rendered or extended to Nineveh, this most wicked of people. How is that justifiable, God? They're the enemy of your people, Israel. The prophets are threatening in Israel now that there will be a nation to overthrow us. Lord, if there was ever a nation that could overthrow us, it's, it's Assyria. They're on the rise. They're taking kingdom after kingdom. They are consuming nations as a, as a steamroller, as it were. They're, they're brutal and they're dismembering their captives. Lord, there's never been a nation more likely to overthrow Israel than Assyria. And you're giving them mercy? You're extending them mercy. Where does that come from? When I see God, when I see God save a, a vicious sinner, I'm talking about the most corrupt of sinners, the most defiled of sinners. When I see them sometimes and the effects that their sinful life and influences had on cultures and families and the destruction and the wake of destruction in their path, you wonder sometimes, why mercy there? I mean, give it to somebody who's ignorant. Extend it to somebody who really don't mean it. They they meant to harm people. They meant to murder and maim and disfigure people. They intended this destruction. How is mercy justified in their case? Whether we say that openly or not, do we adopt that sort of attitude? I mean, Paul said of himself, I'm chief among sinners. That's the way I feel about myself. If if God can extend this dead man mercy, if he can pull me up out of the mire, if he can extend mercy to this one who, who has a taste of the reality that I am not meriting in any way such a mercy, 
How in the world can I question his extending that mercy to even the worst of sinners? That's why I think the dove was supposed to be. That's why I think Jonah was supposed to be the dove. He should have been fulfilling his namesake. He should have gone to Nineveh and proclaimed boldly with the heart of a dove. And with the, with the clear conviction and recitation of the truth of the word of God he was given to declare unto them. And instead of going to watch and see what happened, perhaps he ought to have prayed that God might be merciful to this wicked people, remembering some things about his own nation. I think that's why I think the theme of this whole book is that God is bigger than your Israel. God is not your tribal deity. He is not the possession of the Southern Baptist Convention. God is sovereign in the universe. And as he says through Romans or through Moses and Paul cites in Romans, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful and I will harden whom I will harden. It is my prerogative to extend mercy because it is from my, from my sacrifice the blood of Christ from which it is drawn and I will distribute it where I will based upon the merit of Christ and not the merit of those to whom it is extended. God is so much greater than Israel and the Southern Baptist Convention and Diamond Hill Baptist Church and America. He is the God of the universe. And mercy, let me just say this with all my heart, mercy is costly. Costly. The Son, the blood of the righteous God incarnate, Son of God, spilled out at the hands of the worst of sinners. That's what it cost for your, for your mercy, for the mercy extended to you, for the calling in your life that called you out of darkness and into the light. The, the mercy extended to you when you were dead in your trespasses and defiant and a rebel against God down to the very core of your nature and just condemnation hanging above your head. You were spared that by the infinite value of the shedding of the blood of Christ. Will you now, as a recipient of such mercy, deem to give God instructions as to whom he may extend it to? That's the situation Jonah found himself in. And that's an easy place for us to get in our generation today. This is why I think this is so relevant. Because when I look around in this world, I have to confess to you. Sometimes I watch the news and I just think somewhere in my fleshly spirit... God, just, can you just silence this bunch? Can you cut it off at the root? Now, I know there may be some righteous indignation involved in there, but I can feel the fleshliness in me. Almost this desire that they don't deserve mercy. Shut them down. Send them off into an eternal hell. Silence this corruption and the destruction of our people. Whereas I might ought to be thinking... Oh, how treasured the blood of Christ that he could save such a wretch as I and as they. I mean, when I think that way, it occurs to me that I'm devaluing the merit of Christ's suffering. I'm saying it is sufficient for those who are not descended too far into evil. They're not quite as 
I wasn't quite as dead as they are. Therefore, mercy is sufficient for me. But there is a point at which it is insufficient any longer for the salvation of sinners. God be thanked that that is not the case. Or you wouldn't be saved. Because in the sight of God, our rebellion and defiance of God and His holy character is just as worthy of the condemnation that hung upon the heads of the Ninevites today. In fact, I share with the kids, I'm convinced that the only reason your sinful nature doesn't progress to the level of Adolf Hitler, whom we hold up as extraordinarily evil, the only reason it doesn't descend to that level of expression is the very grace of God, the restraining grace of God, perhaps on behalf of his people whom he's sparing that trouble in this world. But you can believe this, that there are times and period where God withdrew that restraining hand and the evil of this world had its way for a while. And if you don't believe that, just take a look at Calvary. In those moments, the restraining grace of God and the lustful hearts and greedy and selfish and self-exaltations of man became the actual instruments by which Christ was crucified. They were contributing, as it were, someone said, to their own suicide in the murder of Christ. And that's, a, that's the dangerous place that Jonah was in, and I think that's the dangerous place we're in as a nation today. So be guarded that we don't begrudge God extending mercy even to the, our perceived enemies in this world, whether that be China or some other nation, some Islamic idea. Be careful that you don't, in your heart, wish God to deprive them of the very mercy that you live by and that we have been established by even in this country for many years. Stand with me this morning. That's sort of my introduction to Jonah. We'll get in the, the passage let me just say there's much more to Jonah. In fact, you could probably do a series of 50 messages just looking at the different percept per purviews uh, of Jonah. And I pray that God speaks to our heart. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for mercy as I've been reading this book this week and, and just researching and thinking through the text and praying through those. It is this grace, this compassion, this mercy that comes to the forefront. Lord, I find that I'm a Jonah sometimes and I can find myself a little upset, even angered by how you choose to extend mercy. And I'm also selfish enough and blind enough sometimes to rejoice in the mercy that I have received even while I begrudge it towards others. So Lord, I pray that you might bring it to bear in our lives that you might by your spirit reveal its relevancy to the heart of every individual in this room to our to this church this local gathering to the body of christ nationally and globally and lord may you bring it to mind in our country as well in our nation where while we ourselves are hearing the word and being warned of our own corruption and god's judgment upon us would at the same time wish that that mercy would not extend to the those we call our enemies. So have your way in these moments of invitation. Speak to our hearts and shape us according to Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.